hope you picked up a copy of the uh, sermon notes, uh, but we're continuing uh, our series entitled Excelling in Our Love for One Another. And uh, for the sake of our guest, uh, we're taking a very simple approach in this sermon series. We're just simply walking through all of the one another passages found in the New Testament in order to learn uh, how to love one another uh, in the body of Christ. And I have shared with you on uh, several occasions already uh, two primary motives in, uh, that I had in uh, doing this sermon series. Uh, number one, uh, to express my commendation, my affirmation for this church family. Uh, what I am preaching, you've taught me. You, many of you have lived what I preach, and I will be forever indebted to you over these 40-plus years uh, for your impact and influence upon my life and my family's life. And, uh, and in terms of love, uh, my love pales in comparison to uh, the love many of you express and just your wonderful servant's uh, attitude and, uh, and investment in the lives of others. And I just want you to know, uh, I have been very touched over the years by uh, the many expressions of love seen in this church family each and every day, 365 days out of a year. Many of those things go unnoticed, uh, unappreciated, uh, but you do it out of a heart for love for God and love for others. So thank you. But then secondly, of course, we're to what? Not ever become content. We want to excel even more in, in that love for God and our love for one another, thus the uh, purpose for this uh, series. And last week we came to the one another passage. There's only one one another passage in the entire book of Philippians. And that's what we're looking at. And for each of these one another verses, we're not just looking at the verse, but we're looking at the verse in its larger context because it will have much greater impact uh, upon our lives. And we uh, began this message but uh, didn't come close to finishing it. If you have your sermon notes, we covered the entire first page of the sermon notes, and um, uh, we got on to the back side, but f- just for the sake of review, we're not going to review the entire thing, but would you go to the uh, fourth paragraph down on the first page of your sermon notes, you see where it says the Philippian church, that fourth paragraph, let's just begin there, and I'll, with very little comment, but just sort of for review and to uh, launch us into the passage. Uh, The Philippian church was facing external persecution, but their greatest struggle was internal disunity, which threatened the credibility of their witness and effectiveness to advance the gospel. Uh, These struggles provide uh, what uh, uh, these struggles provide the basis for Paul's exhortation at the end of chapter 1. And these verses, verses 27 and 28, would really provide the theme core uh, that this book evolves around. He says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. And I think I mentioned to you last week that word conduct, uh, we get our English word politics from it, politician. And what is being say, said is, is that, hey, we are citizens of what? Heaven. And uh, God has established us on earth as a colony of heaven with a heavenly citizenship. 
And uh, we are to conduct ourselves in a manner that would be consistent with who we are in Christ Jesus. A manner that would be worthy of the gospel, the message of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And then he says, standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, and I'd circle that phrase, one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and in no way alarmed by your opponents. Now notice, next paragraph there, the emphasis on all church members having one mind. Moving into chapter 2, Paul explains what the one mind is. And it is the mind or attitude of Christ toward others. The great lesson in chapter 2 is that the only sufficient basis for unity in the church is each member adopting the mind of Christ in their attitude toward one another. And then that thrust us into trying to define uh, the mind of Christ as you turn over to the back side of your notes. And last Sunday we covered that first point, and that's as far as we got. So let me uh, review this. And we saw that the mind of Christ, this is where it begins, is thinking about one another thinking about one another with the mind of Christ, thinking about one another with the mind of Christ. And our uh, focal verse is verse 3. This is where we find the one another statement uh, connected with verse 5. He says, do nothing, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, by way of a review, uh, let's just walk through the key words in uh, this verse that just bring it to life. Uh, look at that word selfishness. Do nothing from selfishness. In the Greek text, it's the word erethia. This same word is translated in chapter 1, verse 17, as selfish ambition. So what he's saying in the church family, don't ever do anything with a motive to take advantage for yourself, to take advantage of others. No, you're to seek what? The welfare, the benefit of others. But not only do nothing for selfishness, but don't do anything out of what? Empty conceit. That phrase, empty conceit, has the idea of having an overinflated view of oneself and your opinions. You know, thinking that you're right. And because you're right, then everyone else needs to see that you're right. And uh, you need to uh, win the day in terms of your arguments and what you desire the church to do. Again, it's back to this thought of uh, almost assuming that role of a politician, but in a bad way of developing factions and trying to uh, serve your self-interest. And so he says, don't do anything. Don't do anything out of selfishness. Don't do anything out of empty conceit. But what? With humility of mind. And we saw that word humility is a compound word in the Greek text. Uh, the first word is tapinus, which means uh, to be low as opposed to high. And then phreneo, which means to think. So the word literally means to think of yourself. This is the attitude, the perspective you have to, of yourself. You're to see yourself as low 
as opposed to someone who's high. And of course, as we're going to see, in relationship what? To other people. Because the heart of this passage is what? We're to view ourselves as servants of one another. Not to exercise our rights to get our way, but to serve others. So he says, with humility or lowliness of mind, let each of you regard. That word regard is a verb. It's an interesting word in the Greek text. It doesn't mean that this should be your opinion. Uh, This word literally means to give careful, careful thought to something. And after giving careful thought to something, you come to a conclusion. And then based on that conclusion, you live it out. You live the truth. So he's saying that you need to carefully think out and come to the conclusion of what? That one another, that others are what? More what? Important than himself. That word important, it's interesting. It's the same word that you find in chapter 3, verse 8, where Paul says, I've counted all things lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Same word. You know, we don't have any problem seeing the surpassing value of Jesus, do we? And sort of putting Him up on a pedestal and realize that we exist to serve Him. But here in this passage, it's saying, we're to bring that same attitude in relating to one another. That I'm not to do anything out of selfishness. I'm not to do anything out of empty conceit. But instead with lowliness of mind. I'm to let lead in my thoughts related to others that they are of greater value. They are more important than I am. That, of course, makes me a servant in relationship to them, which is the heart of the passage. And then verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Did not Jesus express this attitude when he left the glories of heaven to come to the ghettos of this earth? Not only to become a man, but as we're going to see later in this passage, the servant of all men, and then die that humiliating death on the cross to bring us salvation. And then one last thing, which I think is extremely important that we noted last week, those two words, regard and important, were also often used as military terms. Uh, And in, in a military context, that word regard meant to let lead or to let command. And the word important would be your superior. So what he's saying is, again, don't do anything from selfishness and herb to conceit, but with lowliness of mind. You're to let lead in your thoughts as you relate to one another that they are your superior, your commander. And we shared last week that what Paul is communicating using these military terms, words of duty, is that loving one another, serving one another doesn't rest on our feelings and sentiment towards one another. We're to do this out of obedience to our master, Jesus, in light of the example that he set for us. And so out of love for him, we humble ourselves to serve others as Jesus served us. And that led us to our application, that love, serving one another in the body of Christ, is a deliberate decision to invest in the life of another person that, yes, will often run contrary to my feelings initially. I cannot let my feelings dictate the way I relate to you. Regardless of those feelings, I'm under orders by my master, by my Lord, to serve you, to invest in you. And we talked about last week that as you begin to invest in that person that you're even struggling with, 
that eventually your emotions, your feelings will catch up. But you don't wait till you feel like loving someone. You don't wait till you feel like serving one before you step out and do it. You step out in faith, out of obedience, out of love to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, this gives me an opportunity to mention, I hope there's a theme that you're seeing throughout this series. The key to loving one another is Jesus being my first love and greatest passion and pursuit. Because that's the motive behind it all. And see, whenever there's a failure in love in the church body or in our relationships at any level, within our marriages, within our families, the real issue is our what? Relationship with Christ. We've, we've, we've drifted from Him being our first love, our greatest passion, our greatest pursuit. Because when I see Him as my first love, I realize He's the sovereign God in control. And He won't let any situation, any person touch my life that he hasn't intended for my good. So in light of that, every person that comes into my life, good or bad, whether they're nice to me or mean to me, whether they help me or they hurt me, that person is God's gift to me. God's gift to give me the opportunity to learn to love as Christ loved. And to be very, very honest, the more difficult the person the more irritating I find them to be, the, the, the greater I struggle with my feelings towards them, the greater the opportunity to learn to love as Christ loved. And remember last week we looked at the example of Christ in what? In the Garden of Gethsemane. Did Jesus feel like going to the cross? You know, we saw where every bit of his emotions was telling him to run. Father, there's any way. Let this pass. But he didn't stop there. He let lead in his thoughts that he had come to be a bondservant. And he was submitted to the will of his father. So he said, what? Not my will, but what? Thine be done. And so he made a deliberate decision to go to the cross that was running contrary to his feelings. Okay, look at the second truth that we discover about the mind of Christ there in your uh, sermon notes. The mind of Christ is also looking at one another with the eyes of Christ. It's not only thinking about one another with the mind of Christ, but it's looking at one another with the eyes of Christ. And our focus here is verse 4. Do not merely look out for your own interest, but also for the interest of others. And this is what you need to circle, that little phrase, look out for. Look out for. In the Greek text, it's the word scopio. It's the word, we get the word, our word scope, uh, where we, you know, scope out a, a target uh, to be able to hit it. And it's, and it's, a, it's a Greek word that is as full of meaning. It, it's, it's really virtually impossible uh, to uh, translate its full meaning into the English text. And, and, and let me just share with you the fuller meaning. The word scopio means that, that something or some person has literally captured my attention. I mean, to the point where I'm oblivious of everything else. I mean, I'm riveted on this one object, this one person. But not just that. Not only is it my focus, but also in this Greek word is a thought that as that becomes my focus, now my goal in life, my one objective in life, is to embrace that object, embrace that person, to make it my own. 
Now in chapter 3, verse 14, this word is used expressing our relationship with Christ. Very familiar verse that most of you know, where Paul said, I press on toward the mark or the goal of my high calling in Christ Jesus. The identical word as we find here in 2.4. But there he's talking about Jesus, and we can easily understand it. Paul is saying, Christ has captured my heart. I mean, he's captured my attention, he's captured my affection, he's captured my allegiance, and I am riveted on him. I've counted all things lost, as he mentions, to gain him, and I've counted all things as rubbish in comparison to knowing him in terms of following him. And my one goal in life is to apprehend Jesus and make him my own, even as he has made me his own. I want to become like him. I want to know the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable to his death. But you go back to 2.4, and he's not talking about a relationship with Christ. He's talking about a relationship with one another. And he's saying again, out of our love for Jesus, we're to love one another as he loved us. And therefore, I'm to take my focus off myself. I'm to take my focus off my interest. I'm to take my focus off of my advantage. And I'm to place that focus on you. To work for your spiritual welfare. Your spiritual benefit. To love you. To invest. To meet your needs. That's exactly what is being said here. So look at the application. I am to establish as the number one goal of my life. Not to strategize and work for my good but for the good of others. And as we discover here in the book of Philippians, true joy is found in making what? Others joyful. That's where true joy is found. So the mind of Christ is thinking about one another with the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ is looking at one another with the eyes of Christ. And look at our third point. The mind of Christ is embracing one another with the arms of Christ. The mind of Christ is embracing one another with the arms of Christ. In other words, just to set this up, you know, often when we're having difficulty with one another, let's be honest, we, every one of us has this tendency. We tend to what? Try to avoid that person, right? We sort of keep our distance, you know. But this prohibits that. The mind of Christ tells me to go toward you, to embrace you, good, bad, and ugly, warts and all. Look at verses 6 and 7. And all this is based on the example of our master. Talking about Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God. And by the way, that word form in the Greek text doesn't have the idea of outer form. It's talking about internal essence. This is one of the greatest passages in all the Bible that affirms the deity of Jesus Christ. 
that Jesus, in the very essence of his being, he was God. So who, although he existed in the very form, in the very essence of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to what grasp, to selfishly cling on to. But he what? He emptied himself. He literally poured his deity into human flesh, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. In other words, to save you and I, he became a man. And in that process of emptying himself, he voluntarily gave up his rights to exercise them independently of his father because he was becoming a man. And so he chose as a voluntary act to give up all of his rights, to give up all of his expectations, to give up all of his privileges, and to live his life in total and absolute dependence on his father. Now the key word, again, if you're circling key words, is that word grasp. See, he... he, He could have so easily grasped his rights and his privileges and his prerogatives being equal with God. And not come to save us as a human race. Where he would have been unwilling to release his rights. But that's not the nature of God. God is love. And so his love motivated him to give. Not to come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. And, and so it's talking about the incarnation of Christ. But to put this in very simplistic terms and to be able to make then the transition to how this applies to you and I as we relate to one another, it's just this simple. If I have my arms filled with a lot of clutter, a lot of things, what do I have to do to get close to you and embrace you? What do I have to do? What do I have to do? I got to let it go. I got to free myself. That's what it's saying Jesus did. He let go of everything that would have prevented him from becoming a man, the servant of men, to die that humiliating death on the cross for you and I. Now, what, how, And so how does this apply to me? I need to free my life. I need to let go of the things that I'm holding on so that... I can think about you, focus on you, to minister to your needs. And you'll see there in your notes uh, five little bullet points. And, And this is how we are to embrace one another. Because this is how Jesus embraced us. And this really brings it to the ru- where the rubber meets the road. This is very, very practical stuff that applies not only to the church family, but to our marriages, to our families, and so many realms of, of life. But number one, we're to embrace one another with acceptance. Acceptance. You might want to write, not just acceptance, but unconditional acceptance, which provides feelings of security. Now again, this doesn't mean that we condone as believers all behavior or our sinful attitudes. What it is saying is that I need to be able to look at you and I need to be able to express by my life, my attitudes, and my actions that there's absolutely nothing that you could ever do that would stop me from loving you.
even to the point where you come after me to hurt me, to damage me, no matter what it might be. That's what unconditional acceptance is, and that's what Jesus demonstrated as he embraced mankind to bring salvation. And when you think about it, when somebody embraces you with true unconditional acceptance, it does make them feel secure with you. That is what provides an atmosphere of transparency and openness in a church family or marriage. I mean, when, when there's that unconditional acceptance being, and, and I know I'm not going to be blown away when I make a mistake or I fail or I trip up in sin, that gives freedom for people to be honest, to be transparent, to express they need help, where we can come along one another's side to encourage one another. But not only are we to embrace one another with acceptance, but we're to embrace one another with appreciation. We should all major on expressing appreciation to one another, which provides feelings of worth. In other words, we just talked about the fact that we're to regard others as more important than ourselves. We're to regard others as having surpassing value. Well, if others are, have surpassing value, and if I'm really seeing that, that should provide me motivation to express my appreciation to them, who they are, what God is doing in their lives. And again, when there is that atmosphere of pre- appreciation, that's when every church member feels what? Like they have worth in the church family. They're valuable to the church family. Notice the third one. Embrace one another with availability. Availability, which provides feelings of importance. Bottom line, it's just simple. The people that are important to you are the people you make yourself available to. That's just a reality. The people that are important to you, you make yourself available to them. And so we need to embrace one another with availability, that, that we're, we're always on standby. And, and because of my unconditional acceptance of you, you never need to be feared to tell me anything, even your mistakes or your troubles or your burdens, and I'll be on standby to, to invest in your life and to help you bear that burden. Remember we talked about that in Galatians, we're to bear one another's burdens and thus what? Fulfill the law of Christ. And remember we talked about, hey, if you're struggling... Uh, for your place in the church family, just major on being a burden bearer. It could be no greater task to undertake than to just keep your eyes open to people that are bearing burdens, that are struggling, and you just come along their side just to help them shoulder that, that burden and to provide encouragement and support. And so many of you in this church family do this so beautifully. So very, very beautiful. Thank you. And then look at the fourth thing. We're to embrace one another with affection. There should be an atmosphere of warmth in the church body. Gentleness, meekness, which provides feelings of being loved. And then that last one, we're to embrace one another with accountability. And this provides good balance. Because we love, we need to lovingly hold one another accountable. There's a tenderness of love. But when love needs to be, it can be, it can be tough. 
I mean, you see this in the ministry of Jesus with his disciples. He couldn't have been more gentle. He couldn't have been more meek. I mean, think of that episode that we talked about a couple of weeks ago where they're arguing about who's the greatest at that last supper. He's about to go to the cross, you know, and they, they you know, who, who's the greatest? And they want, everyone wanting to be at top of the totem pole. And he doesn't say a thing. He just disrobes, takes that towel, that basin, and he washes his disciples' feet. Washes his disciples' feet. So he could be tender. But there are times where he looked at old Peter, for example, and he said, Get thee behind me, Satan. Uh, he was willing to confront his men when they were beginning to move in a direction that was destructive to them. It wasn't about his interest. He was concerned about, and if I really love you, how can I let you proceed in a pathway that I know is going to be destructive to you and those around you. So love demands that I lovingly intervene, lovingly confront, again, putting the focus on your good, your interest, what's best for you. And so look at the application. I reach out, I am to reach out and accept others as what? Christ accepted me. Remembering Christ accepted me when I was unlovable and at my worst. Let me just put a testimony in here. I, I have shared this before. I love this testimony. I don't mind sharing it again. And there are many of you here that have never heard this testimony. I was speaking for a pregnancy center up in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And before I got up to speak, they had a client testimony. And this is how it went. This girl gets up. Now, and, and you'll understand where I'm going with this. I don't mean in any way to mean to be dismeaning to this girl, but it's part of the testimony. She probably stood about 6'3". She was uh, probably close to 30 years of age. Very athletic woman. Uh, you could, and as you're going to see, would have been very imposing with what I'm about to tell you. Well, she, she stands up to give her testimony, and she said, you know, when, when I first came into the pregnancy center, I knew they were pro-life, I knew that they were Christian, and I hated everything that they stood for. She was pro-abortion, she was an unbeliever, and she detested everything they stood for. But she said, I didn't have money, I wanted to take advantage of that free pregnancy test because I was concerned that I might be pregnant. So he said, I went in there with two objectives. I want to get that pregnancy test. And number two, I want to see how miserable I can make it for those folks in there. So she goes in. She says, they hooked me up with this young woman that was younger than me, a very young uh, housewife with some small children. Uh, she said, a very little petite girl. She actually said, very little petite girl. And I could have taken her in one hand and crushed her, is what she said. So she said, I go in there, and the first thing I began to do was just curse her out. Before she could say anything. I said, you blankety blank, blank, blank. I don't want to hear any blankety blank, blank, blank thing you want to say to me. I don't want to see any blankety blank thing you want to show me. You know, all I want is my pregnancy. Then I'm blankety blank, 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 blank out of here. I mean, it couldn't have been more vile, it couldn't have been more vicious, it couldn't have been more cruel. And she said, as, I, as I'm just spewing this, this venom on this counselor, I'm getting very frustrated because I cannot knock that stupid smile off of her face. Now, I'll be very honest with you. That counselor was dying a thousand deaths on the inside. That counselor was thinking, if I survive this uh, event, 
I'm out of here and never coming back. I mean, that's exactly what she was thinking, what was going on. Well, she goes out and she gets her pregnancy test results, and it was positive. She, you know, that she had a, that she was pregnant. She gave that to her, and that that girl just it was like a bomb went off. You know, it got even worse. The vileness and the language and just spewing on her. And the woman jumps up and she's leaving. And as she gets up, the little counselor gets up. And just the way the, the room was sort of arranged, uh, there was no thought she was trying to impede her progress, but the counselor was between the door and the woman. And so the woman just pauses for a moment, and then the counselor looks up at her and says, before you leave, would you please give me the privilege of hugging you? That woman said, I could not believe she just asked me that. How could anyone, after the way I treated her, ask to give me a hug? And she said, before I could yell, no, get out of my way, I'm out of here, she said she had me in her arms, and she wouldn't let go. And she said, when she took me in her arms, I literally broke and began to weep uncontrollably. She said, I literally wept, not for seconds, but for minutes, minutes, in her arms. I could not stop crying. I could not stop crying. And she said, and here's the reason why. She was nearly 30 years old. She said, this was the first time in my life that anyone had ever showed me any physical affection that did not have an ulterior motive to abuse me or use me. She had been a victim of sexual abuse as a child. And as you know, people that carry those wounds, those hurts, often they put up big walls. They don't want to make themselves vulnerable again. They don't want to get hurt again. So it's, they don't, they don't, often they don't trust anybody, and they try to intimidate everybody just to keep a safe distance. And that's where this woman was. And then she stated, once I got control of myself, things didn't end at that point. I, I sat back down. I turned from abortion to choose life for my baby. And she had her baby there, showing the baby off, big old boy, about eight pounds something. And she said, and that day I came to know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And my life has never been the same. As she was continuing to grow and walk with him. How do you explain that? The power of a simple hug, embrace. And that's the attitude that we're to have towards one Another. The fourth thing, very quickly as we close, the mind of Christ is thinking about other, others with the mind of Christ, looking at one another with the eyes of Christ, embracing one another with the arms of Christ, and then the mind of Christ is loving one another with the heart of Christ. Verse 8, in being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself of becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And let me just get right to the application. Love is willing to make sacrifices, bear shame, and experience pain for the benefit of one unworthy of such love. And then if you ask, well, what is the secret of loving like that. And let me just end with this. 
1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13. It gives this marvelous description of love. And then it, it ends that description by saying this. And you all are familiar with it. Love, what? Bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. That's why love never fails. And folks, listen to me as I close. Very important. This is the secret to loving one another. What gives love, God's kind of love, the ability to bear up under the most difficult of circumstances with the most difficult of people, to be long-suffering, and to extend kindness towards the hand that's even inflicting pain on your life. What gives love the ability to bear up like that? The next phrase is the key. Love believes. But understand what's being said. As I'm, let's say I'm relating to a person that's, that's really out to hurt me. And has hurt me. Has deeply wounded me. When it says love believes all things, it's not that I'm placing my confidence in this person to change. It's not that I'm placing my confidence in my ability to do something to get them to change. When it says love believes all things, it's saying love maintains its focus on God, God's grace. See, if I look at that person's willingness, I'm going to come up empty. If I look at my ability to bring change, I'm going to come up empty. But as long as I keep my eyes on God, placing my confidence in His grace, what's the next phrase? Love hopes. I'm never without hope. There's always hope. As long as I maintain my focus on God, and if I have hope, what's the next phrase? Love what? Endures all things. I can endure one more time. One more incident. Whatever my, I'm just going to continue to invest. And that's why love never fails. Not that love wins every individual. It doesn't. I mean, look at Jesus. He said, broad is the road that leads to eternal life. And what? Many, many follow it. And narrow is the road that leads to eternal life. And few find it. So it doesn't mean that love always wins every individual. When it says love never fails, it means there's nothing that you could ever do to stop me from loving you. And so, I close with this question. See, how will I have the confidence? Here's the point. How will I have the confidence that God can accomplish His work in the other person that I'm struggling with? How can I even have that kind of confidence if I'm not experiencing God's grace in my own life? You understand what I'm saying? We're right back to our personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus being my first love, greatest passion and pursuit. And out of that relationship with Jesus, I find the strength to love. See, love is simply reaching out to others out of the overflow of God's grace in my life. Confident, if God can do it for me, He can do it for anybody. So, I cannot love others without what? Christ being my first love. Bow with me in prayer. Mark, we're not going to do a formal invitation. Just don't feel led to do that this morning. I just, just keep your heads bowed. I just want to give you an opportunity for a moment uh, to reflect 
on the truth that you just heard. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with lowliness of mind, you're to regard others as more important, more valuable than yourself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but the interest of others. And have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking upon himself the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself to the point of death even death on a cross. And as we stated at the beginning of this service, the key to unity in a church family is every church member adopting the mind of Jesus. And I hope you didn't miss something as we were going through this message. Where did the mind of Christ begin? Thinking about others with the mind of Christ. See, that's a choice I make. I'm responsible for my thought life. Now, there's a battle between the flesh and the spirit. And I'm going to battle with negative, critical thoughts, inappropriate thoughts. But I'm responsible from God to recognize that is not Christ-like. And to not let me run down that path. But to turn from that, repent from that, and put my thoughts on Christ. How He loved And that I'm to commit to love as He loved. Even when it's running contrary to my feelings, I make that deliberate decision to invest. We talked about the mind of Christ as looking at others with the eyes of Christ. It's talking about focus. I'm responsible for what I focus in on in my life. God can't do that for me. That's a decision I make. He's given me every incentive. He's given me the empowerment. But I have to make a deliberate decision. I'm going to take the focus off myself and put it on others. And then to embrace others with the arms of Christ. Again, that's a decision I have to make. He's given me the instructions. He's given me every incentive. His power is made available to me. But He expects me to take that step of faith toward that person that I'm struggling with and truly embrace them and continue to invest my life into them. And then that heart of love. You know, we talked about 1 Corinthians 13. All of, in our English Bibles, you don't see this. It, they're adjectives describing love. But in the Greek Bible, they're all verbs, action words. Where again, we, we, we learn love through the practice of love. So, I want to give you an opportunity right now, just a few minutes. Is there anybody in this church family that you're struggling with? And let me just give you an opportunity to maybe, right now, maybe nip in the bud some of those negative, critical thoughts you've had. And and to come to the mind of Christ. And to demonstrate a love that would be greater than any differences. A love that would unite us in our diversity. Doesn't mean we're going to agree on everything, but we need to learn how to be, to disagree without what? Becoming disagreeable. Or how about your marriage or your family? Are you struggling with your spouse? Are you struggling with a child? Young people, are you struggling with a parent? So what I'm asking you to do right now 
is to focus on any individual or persons you, you're really struggling with. And to be honest, you would have to admit, I've been just trying to avoid them because I don't like them. And they've hurt me. And are you willing today to have this attitude in you, which was in Christ Jesus, to embrace the mind of Christ and to be obedient, to make that deliberate decision to continue to invest, even though right now it may be running contrary to your feelings. So I'll just give you a chance to respond. Father, as we uh, close the service today, we readily acknowledge that you've given us all the spiritual resources needed to grow in this truth. You've given us clear instruction. God Himself dwells in our hearts through the person and power of the Holy Spirit. And that power of the resurrection that we'll celebrate next Sunday is available to us. So, Lord, we acknowledge and I acknowledge our failure in this area comes down to our resistance to the Holy Spirit, to our quenching the Holy Spirit, grieving the Holy Spirit, our own selfishness and empty conceit, where we're refusing, as James tells us, to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He might exalt us at the proper time. So, Lord, I trust this morning that's what's happening throughout this congregation. We're humbling ourselves, acknowledging our failure, acknowledging our selfishness, our conceit, our clinging on to our rights, our expectations, our unwillingness to adopt that lowliness of mind like our Savior, to be a servant. So, Lord, as we do repent, Give us grace now to restore relationships, to build bridges. As we saw in Ephesians 4, to be diligent to preserve the unity that you have given us as a gift through your death on the cross when you not only reconciled us to the Father, but you brought an end to all hostility in horizontal relationships. 
So, Lord, we do acknowledge, apart from you, we can do nothing. But thank you, through you, we can do all things. And so, again, Lord, if there's a failure here, it's not on your part. It's on our part. So, Lord, give us the grace to fall before you, to be obedient to you. For it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen.